Ephesians 5 is what we're going to look at here this morning, and um, I'm going to pray first, and then I'll kind of set this up, and we'll read the passage. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll be happy to get you guys a Bible. Um, if you guys don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep this. It's our, our gift to you guys. We want you guys to have a copy of God's Word that you can have, that you can read, uh, and explore what God's all about by reading His Word. So let me pray. Um, I'll set this up, and then we'll read, and then we'll jump in. So, God, we ask you right now that you would uh, lead our time here, God, that you would inform our minds, God, that you would rewire our, our desires to be like yours. God, we confess that so oftentimes our desires are, are inordinate and are fixed on the wrong things. We love the wrong things, and that's what leads us away from you. And God, so what we need is a rewiring of that. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. We need your help, your Holy Spirit, to uh, rewire our affections to love you above and beyond all other things. So we commit, God, ourselves into your care, and we ask that you would do this this morning as we uh, set our hearts and our minds upon your word, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians 5, what we've been saying, really the whole book of Ephesians, I'll kind of give a quick little synopsis. If you guys have been with us for any length of time, this is kind of, uh, uh, you know, stuff that we've already studied, and uh, it's old hat. Um, you guys already know the drill. If you're new, hopefully this will kind of help catch you up to speed. So in short, chapters 1 through 3 basically talks about the actions of a healing God, what God has done to enter into our world to bring about healing. And his healing in the ultimate sense comes in that he gives to undeserved people like you and I uh, salvation. He rescues us. He rescues us from our sin. He rescues us from uh, death. And ultimately, in the most extreme sense, hell, destruction, brokenness, and he rescues us from that. But he also rescues us within this life by rewiring our desires so that our desires become like his, so that we live like him. And oftentimes we pray prayers, we say things like, God, make me like you. And oftentimes the Christian church within moralistic type streams has a tendency to rewire that or hijack that. We say things like, well, to be like Jesus means... You don't drink, and you don't go to R-rated movies, and you don't say four-letter words. And the reality is, is that may include that, but it doesn't, it doesn't end right that. It, it involves how we engage with other people. Do we love other people, or do we hold on to grudges? Uh, do we uh, work through offenses and work towards reconciliation, or do we nurture offenses and allow those little grievances to kind of stir within our hearts and breed and fester um, because being like Jesus means we learn how to absorb offenses, we learn how to work through them in order to bring forth reconciliation. That is, by definition, what it means to love like Jesus or be like Jesus. And this is what Paul is saying, that that's part of what it means to be saved, that God is saving us from those desires that have actually led us astray, led us into a path of brokenness, and led us into a path of ultimate death. And this is what Jesus is doing and up to in our lives, if you're saved, if you've been uh, recognized as one who has trusted Jesus. So chapters 4 through 6 basically unpack really the actions of a healed people, uh, what it looks like to be actually a person that has received God's healing, and how that begins to work its way out in your life. It begins to work its way into the relationships that you find yourselves in. So Really what salvation does is it saves you in an ultimate sense from an ultimate destruction, ultimate judgment, but it also saves you for God's kingdom here and now. 
to live this, this thing we call the gospel, to live it here now, to live the good news, to embody that here in this life right now. And that comes forth through the way that we live. And so chapter 5, Paul introduces a new theme that he describes what that process of what God has done in us, for us, through us, he describes as walking in the light, being rescued or saved from darkness and then into light. So it's one of the reasons why Paul would say, so therefore, walk in light. And so what we've been doing over the past several weeks has been trying to really unpack and understand what it means to walk in light and what it means to avoid darkness. And one of the things that we've been unpacking is that Paul says, those that walk in light will expose the deeds of darkness. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I'll show you a quick little chart and kind of uh, just so you can get a a, sort of a, a feel for what we've been unpacking so beginning of chapter 15 down to about chapter, tw- or verse 21, I should say, 15, verse 21 down to 15, 21, Paul basically says this, walking in light looks like, and then he gives a series of, of, of actions and attitudes of what walking in light looks like. But then we also kind of been uh, understanding or trying to understand what it means to have certain deeds of darkness exposed. So I'm not going to go into any other, other ones that we looked at in the past several weeks. You can check out the MP3s on our website and listen to those if you like. Um, but we're going to focus on today, verse 19. So one of the examples or evidences that you have and are currently walking in the light, um, shockingly, is Paul's going to say, it looks like singing to God. That's what walking in light looks like. So some of you might be like, oh great, is this going to be a sermon on singing? Yes, that's exactly what this is. It's a sermon on singing. So I hope today to convince you uh, through scripture, that God convinced you is really my hope. Uh, I'll just be a mouthpiece, hopefully. And, and my, my hope is that the scripture, God, the Holy Spirit, will convince you that singing is not just something that religious people do. Singing is not something that fanatic people do. Singing is what people who have been rescued from darkness to light do. It's as simple as that. That's, that's, that's what Paul is saying. And what that does, it actually exposes the darkness of self-preoccupation. So that's where we're going to head today. Walking in light looks like singing to God simultaneously when we walk in obedience to sing as people who've been brought from darkness into light, that will ultimately expose this darkness of self-preoccupation. So in short, what that means is we as human beings, we have this, uh, this preoccupation with ourselves. We're focused on ourselves. We're focused on ourselves so much so that we exclude not only God, but also neighbor. We, we don't pay attention to them so that when they're hurting, we don't think about them. When God does something good for us, to us, uh, through us, we're oftentimes, the default mode of our heart is to not acknowledge it, is to not give thanks to God, is to not respond appropriately to God. And what that does is it actually is equivalent to walking in darkness. So let me put this on a purely human level. If you're the type of person that is totally self-preoccupied, all right? And let's say you have a group of friends. Are you the type of person that your friends want to regularly spend time with? Let me just ask you this on a personal level. If you know somebody that is totally self-preoccupied, they're always focused on themselves, they're always talking about themselves, they're always boasting about themselves, they're always complaining about themselves, they're always, always focused on themselves, is that the type of person that you, A, enjoy hanging out with, or B, want to run away from as fast as you can. Typically, it's B, right? Uh, 
Uh, and some of us are like, well, who is that? Like, that's all of us, by the way. Like, that's all of us. We all have those tendencies to be like that. But now let's put that in the context of a larger global context of humanity. What if all humanity is self-preoccupied? What type of neighborhood, global neighborhood, if you want to think of it that way, do we have? We have a dysfunctional, broken neighborhood where people are not concerned about the needs of others. People are not concerned about the needs of God. People are only preoccupied and concerned about their own needs, and that leads to darkness. Darkness. And yet God in grace and kindness has done something for us to pull us out of that black hole that sucks and absorbs all forms of light into itself, and it turns it into a mirror that then begins to reflect forth outwardly the praises of God. And this brings change. This is what it looks like to walk in light. So we're going to read uh, chapter 5, verse 19, because the verse is so short, I figured you guys aren't going to be getting your money's worth, so I decided to throw down another translation, so we'll read it twice. One in the ESV, second, we'll read it in what's called the Amplified Version. So uh, first verse we'll read in ESV, it says this, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And Paul just finished talking about uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, don't be drunk with wine. We're in his, uh, debauchery. And really the point is, is that those that are walking in light uh, walk in a way in which they are filled with the Spirit. They're turning to God. They're allowing this uh, redemptive, restorative, creative God uh, into their life, welcoming into their life so that their lives then become transformed and changed. And that exposes the darkness of narcoticizing ourselves with cheap substitutes. That's why Paul says, stop getting drunk with, with wine. Maybe read in that cheap wine, like the stuff you buy for two bucks. Like, stop doing that, because that is not helping you. It's not removing the pain, this uh, hardness, difficulties within your life. It's only narcoticizing. It's only postponing the pain for a later date. When Paul says, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And out of that, Paul says, a life that is... Filled with the Holy Spirit, a life that is walking in the light is a life that sings to God. Same time exposes that sense, that problem, that darkness of self-preoccupation. So I'll read it from the Amplified Version right now. It says this, speak out to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, offering praise with voices and instruments, it adds, uh, and making melody with all your heart to the Lord. So obviously what Paul is focusing on here is Singing in our engagement with regard to singing. So, when we sing, what Paul is going to unpack for us, well, first of all, kind of unpack and look at that whole verse. Uh, take a look at, first of all, those three words that Paul uses. Sing to God in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Scholars have kind of debated as to exactly what this means and what this is in reference to. So, there's really no debate whatsoever what regard to the psalms are about. Most would obviously realize Paul was a, uh, an ex-Pharisee a recovering Pharisee, and Paul was obviously familiar with the Psalms, and the Psalms were, for the most part, the hymn book of the Old Testament. It would have been sort of the, uh, the hymn book, the song book of all Jewish contexts. So any songs that they would sing would have been sort of compiled in what's called the book of Psalms. It's the very same book of Psalms that you guys have in your Bibles. And it probably would have made up much of the type of uh, songs that were sung within the early church. But Paul doesn't stop with just simply Psalms. He adds, he uses the word hymns. And now this is, this is sort of the controversial word because a lot of uh, scholars have tried to debate it as exactly where is the context of hymns and what is this a reference to. And obviously this is not necessarily referring to you know, the, the great hymn, um, 
I don't know, come thou found of every blessing or amazing grace and all that because they hadn't been written yet. But the word hymn that's actually used there was found in a lot of Greek literature to actually reference the hymns or songs that would have been sung outside of the temples of false gods and goddesses. It's kind of a fascinating thing that, um, which has led a lot of scholars is to you know, conclude, like, why would Paul summon or reference to um, these types of songs that would have been sung uh, to false gods and false deities? And uh, some scholars have actually concluded that perhaps what was happening within the early church is the songs that would have been devoted or dedicated to, say, Zeus or Asclepius or some of these other gods or goddesses in the early first century were actually being brought into the church, and rather than being used to sing to these false gods and goddesses, they would have actually been reworded and retooled so that they would have been now applied to, to Yahweh, to, to Christ, to Jesus, and do his redemptive works, which, if that's true, that's kind of fascinating, because that meant that the, the early church would have had an understanding that, that nothing is soiled to the point where it's beyond redemption. I love that, because if this is true then it meant that there really was no distinction. There really was no like Christian music and then secular music. It was like there, there is only uh, defiled music, and that's it. But the beauty of the gospel is that anything that's even defiled can be brought in and restored and redeemed and then reused to bring glory to Jesus. And that's, that seems to be what some scholars um, imply, that what was being referred to when Paul talks about hymns. The third word that he uses here is the word spiritual songs. Now, um, the word there used for songs uh, is kind of preceded by the word uh, spiritual. And really, oftentimes when you see anything that's kind of describing like spiritual whatever, like spiritual gifts or whatever, um, typically think of it this way. There are gifts, or in this case a song, it could be just a regular song, but what makes it spiritual is that it has influence or has been influenced by the Holy Spirit, that God has breathed into it. Now, that might sound kind of creepy or weird or mystical, but really the idea is that it's taken on new shape, new form. It's really all it means, is that the form that maybe it had prior was a form that led to brokenness or continued to convey or purvey darkness. But being in the hands of the Spirit or being a spiritual song meant that it was a song that actually bred life or was life-giving, that pointed to the life-giver. That's the idea, perhaps, that is being conveyed here. But nonetheless, Paul says is that we are to sing these songs. So we'll take a look at basically four things this morning. We'll take a look at the first two that kind of derive uh, straight from the verse, and then we'll uh, branch out and broaden out in terms of how some of these other things can play out. First of all, we'll take a look at that when we sing, first of all, what you're actually doing is you're obeying God. When you sing in a congregation, as a church, as a gathering, first and foremost, what you're actually doing is you're obeying God. And we gather this because the way that Paul actually writes this is he writes this as a command. Most of our Bible translations kind of carry this out, that Paul is actually not just saying, hey, I want to suggest to you guys something. Every once in a while, if you guys feel like it, if anybody has a song or a hymn or whatever, if they want to sing, if it's convenient, if you guys have time for it, maybe do it. Paul's actually saying, no, do it, sing. And, and this is what's called written in the imperative, that Paul is basically saying this is a command. Now, a lot of times we, we bristle against commands. I mean, I don't want to project myself and my emotions upon you, but the reality is when I tend to hear commands, I tend to bristle a little bit. I'm like, what? I'm going to show my individuality, and I will go indie on this, and I will not respond to this command because I'm, I'm independent. I can do what I want to do, and I bristle against or put my heels in revulsion to being told to do most things. But that's because we have a false understanding of really what freedom's all about. 
we have sort of modified or broken type of an understanding as to what freedom is all about. We tend to think of freedom as being, I have the ability to do whatever I want, when I want, how I want, the way that I want. And we tend to think that that's where true freedom is found. But the Bible's understanding of freedom is really the exact opposite. That the Bible's understanding of freedom is freedom to really do what God calls you to do. Or, to put it in another language, commands you to do. True freedom, in other words, is actually found in doing what God tells you to do. So when you hear commands like, do this, we oftentimes hear commands like, eat you know, your spinach because it's really good for you even though it tastes horrible. But in reality, if you think of it this way, God is a good father. That's, that, all it's simply showing is that we have a God that oftentimes we don't quite understand. But if we understand that we have a God that really loves us and seeks our delight, seeks our joy, he wants us to find joy in him, then what we have is a father that says, look, my command to you is eat your tiramisu. Enjoy the ice cream sandwich. Not from Walmart because it doesn't melt. But live a life that gives you life by doing what I command you to do. And God, this is really the idea that Paul is basically saying. Do what God calls you to do. This is what breeds life. This is life giving. It's life generating. It's clean. It's what gives you the ability to keep moving forward. And that's what Paul is inviting us to engage in. So when Paul says, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with all your heart, Paul's really saying enter into something that is life-giving, life-transforming, life-sustaining. I hope we see it as such. So the question has to really be asked, what do we do when we don't want to sing? All right, here's a show of hands moment. How many of you actually come to church, pretty frequent basis, and you don't really feel like singing? Raise your hand. You don't really feel like singing. All right, I'm not absolutely confident. I hope you guys are being honest, but it's all good. Um, maybe like, I don't know, 10% of you guys raise your hand. My guess is that probably maybe 50%, but I could be wrong. But if that's true, let's just say if it is 10%, then that means that 90% of you guys come to church, you're like, I'm so amped on singing. I can't wait till singing gets started. But here's my point. I think, again, I don't want to project my emotions or my feelings upon you guys, but the fact is there's a lot of times I come and I don't really want to sing. I'm not, I, I'm not engaged. My mind is wandering. I'm thinking about what's happening in the news and the world. I'm thinking about, you know, having to teach a sermon. I'm thinking about all sorts of things. My mind is wandering. And yet, what I need to realize is that God welcomes me, invites me, calls me to, as, a, as a part of the congregation, the gathering, to come and sing. So the question has to be asked, then, how do I take my heart that may or may not be interested in singing or wanting to sing because my desires are not there, how do I bring my heart in alignment with what God says to do? Um, so there's three things I think we can look at real quickly. So the first of which, next slide, is that we see that we need to remind ourselves of God's greatness. We need to remind ourselves of God's greatness. So let me put it this way. If this is an imperative, meaning it's a command, one of the things that we've been saying all along is that anytime you see an imperative, a command for us to do something, it's always rooted in what's called an indicative, meaning something that God has done. One of the problems within the church is we have a tendency to simply give imperatives without, first of all, rooting those carefully within indicatives. And what you have then is you have moralism. You have churches that are filled with people trying to do stuff for God without understanding, first and foremost, what God has already done for them. 
So Romans or Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 begins with just unbelievable amounts of indicatives of what God has already done, that he's rescued us, that God has come into our lives, that God has come into this world that is broken, that really, if you think of it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all sought to exert our own uh, self-will, our own self-determination, but what's happened is the good shepherd has sought after lost sheep to bring them back into the fold to restore them. If you want to think of another uh, idiom or metaphor, that the good husband has come into the world and to seek after his prostituted wife who has given herself away for real cheap, has a heroin needle hanging out of her arm, and he's found her. Rather than divorcing her, he has sought to bring her back, to wine and dine her again, to bring her back to life, to welcome her and to love her, to wash her, to cleanse her, to bring healing to her, to think of it another way, that God, the good father, has gone after his son or his daughter who has squandered their inheritance and has completely ruined their life and has not cast them off as a servant, but to say, I want you to come back as my, as my highly honored son and my highly honored daughter. This is the story. These are the indicatives of the Bible that God has done something for us and the way that God has done this, where God has done this is the cross. And this is what God invites us to root our lives into. We would call it, this is what it means to live in accordance to or with the gospel. Understanding this God that's like this then leads to these imperatives of singing. And it's in that context, doesn't singing make a lot more sense? Realizing what God has done for you, realizing that he hasn't cast you off, he hasn't kicked you to the curb, he hasn't abandoned you, he hasn't turned his back on you, because instead he's welcomed you. This is what he's done. This leads to a natural response. This is why Paul, I think, can say, sing to God. The idea of a command is another way of thinking of it is, it's basically saying, this is the right response to God. So in other words, if God's done something, what is the right response to God? Well, Paul is saying the right response to a God that has done something great and profound is singing. So the second thing that we can look at is we have to actually say to ourselves or speak to our soul, just like what the psalmist did in Psalm 57, wake up my soul. So this might sound a little bit creepy, but I want you to hear me out and think about this. The psalmist who wrote most of the Psalms in the Old Testament, perhaps this could have been David, uh, there are times, obviously, even David didn't feel like singing. So the question is, is, is what kept David keep on going on? Like, what was it that allowed David to keep writing these songs and keep singing these songs? Because whatever it was, it's something that we can glean from and look at and apply in our own lives. When we come to church, we're like, I don't really want to sing. And if, especially if it's a command, I'm going to put on my heels. I'm definitely not going to sing. Uh, how can we engage this uh, first of all, like I said, reminding ourselves of God's greatness. Secondly, by speaking to our soul saying, wake up. There are passages in the Psalms where David literally talks to himself and incorporates into his song because he knows that his soul, his emotions, his feelings are not in line with a proper alignment with or his emotions are not synced up with who God is. In other words, there's a not a, 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 an adequate response in David's heart to the revelation of who God is. And so David would recognize this as a problem within his own soul. And then he would say, wake up my soul. Look at who God is. See who God is. Rise. Wake up. Stop sleeping and see how good God is. And that's what really David would have done. And this is something that you and I think we can do. We can speak to ourselves and say, wake up. Speak to your soul to wake up. Third thing 
is we stretch out our voice in faith and we sing. The third thing is we stretch out our voice and sing. I chose my words carefully because the idea that I want to convey is just like when Jesus came to a paralyzed person, he had a crippled arm, Jesus said, stretch out your arm. I want you to think about this, that here's this guy who's got a crippled arm, probably since his birth, not able to use it. Hold on a second, let me get fixes. And yet Jesus says, I want you to stretch out your arm. This guy could have said, "Uh, I can't. I mean, obviously my arm is crippled. To ask me, to command me to stretch out a crippled arm is, is ridiculous. But the reality is, is this is Jesus talking here. This is Jesus giving the command. So I want you to think about this. This crippled guy had the option of basically saying, what you're asking me to do is something I've already tried, I've never been able to do, I cannot do later. And yet instead what he does is he literally stretched out his arm. And by doing so, Jesus healed him. Somehow there was this connection between him stretching out his arm in faith and Jesus actually healing him. That there was this connection between faith and Christ's response. Christ's actual intervention and healing. So I want you to think about this. When Jesus calls us, or when God calls us to sing, and we find in our hearts, like, I don't really want to sing, and we remind ourselves of God's greatness, and we speak to our soul to sing, there comes a point where we've just got to say, am I going to sit here in this room, like, a hand, like a, my arm is crippled, and not stretch it out, or will I stretch it out in faith, my voice, to sing to this great God, and see what happens because again, God's commands always are intended to bring life. Not suck life, not crush us, not oppress us, but to breathe life into our souls. And so when God commands us, especially through one of his leaders like Paul, to sing, it must be a life-giving command. A couple examples, we see Jesus sings. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. It says that when he, Jesus, and the leaders, they sung a hymn. It says they went up to the Mount of Olives. Early Christians, they sang. Uh, it says in Acts chapter 16, 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas, they were praying and they were singing hymns to God. So here they are in the middle of hardships and trials and difficulties, in the middle of a dungeon, and they're singing out to God. Let me pause one final thing and say this before I move on to the next one. But oftentimes, I think we can look at our lives, and I think one of the big complaints that we can sometimes have is we might say things like, well, I'm not that very demonstrative in my singing. So there's other people that might raise their hands, other people might sing really loud, other people that might stand, some might get on their knees, but that's not me. I'm, I, I'm not demonstrative like that. And I realize that we are, some of us are actually wired that way. I mean, there's some people that I know that are just, they're, they're, they're not wired that way at all. And to somehow force them or kind of cause them to feel like this is the right response, you've got to do all these things, is actually, in my opinion, something that is, is, is not good. It leads to an oppression. But I would say that most of us, many of us, when we say, I'm not that demonstrative, really that's kind of code for just saying, again, I don't really want to do it. And so just, just to kind of press a little bit further on this without, and again, I, you've got to hear me out here, I'm not in any way trying to cause anybody to feel uncomfortable, kind of I am, but at the end of the day, I don't want anybody to feel uh, guilted, that's definitely not my intention, I don't want anybody to feel shame, but I want you to think through this. So how many of you would look at your life, don't you know, raise your hand, would look at your life and just say, I'm not the demonstrative type of person that raises my hands during singing. I'm not the demonstrative type of person that stands or does the other types of demonstrative types of actions with my body. But at home, maybe in private, you know, you might, in front of your mirror, you know, start rocking out to a Justin Bieber song or like looking at yourself in the mirror, like doing some little grooves and dances and whatnot. And you're like, you know, life at the party, maybe sometimes get a little 
whatever, hanging out with some friends, and you get crazy, and start doing some crazy stuff, or you're a dude, and you're like, oh, that's not me, I don't ever do anything demonstrative like that, and singing, but you go to a football game, and you have your team that you love, and your heart is fixed on them, and they score, and you absolutely go ballistic, you jump up, you paint your face with the colors of your team, you do things that are extremely demonstrative, but when it comes to singing to God, you tend to shy and say, it's just not me. I want to challenge you to think about that. It's not that you're not demonstrative. It's just that we are, choose to be demonstrative towards things, for things that are actually less worthy. Would you agree with that? That's a hard thing to agree with. I, I understand. If, if you don't want to agree with that, that's, that's totally, I understand it. I, I, just, I want to plant that seed in your mind for you to begin to think about that, chew on that. That's, that's, all, I'm, that's all I want to do. I'm going to leave it right there. But all I'm simply saying is that really what, what worship is, what singing to God is, it's a way of responding to God in a way that's proportionate to the revelation that he has revealed himself to us. So in other words, if God is absolutely, infinitely great, and he's revealed himself as absolutely, infinitely great, and his salvation is absolutely and infinitely great, then the question is, is, is our response to some degree proportionate to that? Or do we find ourselves making excuses as to why it's not and yet, we find our hearts demonstratively expressive towards other things that are of lesser value. That's it. Next, next thing I want to take a look at is uh, singing to God. Also, when we're doing this, we're welcoming God into the narrative of our lives. We're welcoming God in the narrative of our lives. So it says three up there. It's actually two. Um, we're welcoming God in the narrative of our lives. And this actually comes into the very verse that Paul says. So again, take a look at the verse. He says, Ephesians 5, he says, sing with all your heart to the Lord. Uh, and the idea of your heart in the first century would have been understood as the seat or the center for all of your intellect, your uh, desires, and your emotions. So I want you to think about that. In other words, the concept of the heart, when Paul says, sing to God with all of your heart, it's not just saying, you know, give to God the leftover scraps on the table of all your emotions. Paul is actually saying, with the very core, the very center of your thinking, your desires, and your emotions, give that to God. With all of your heart, not a portion of it, not 94% of it, all of it, give that to God. And Paul says that this is, I mean, again, when you think about what it's asking of us, it's massive. In fact, this is why, again, I, 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 I'm going to say this right now. I'm not going to wait till the end to say this. This is why if you simply take the imperatives and you divorce them from the indicatives and you try to fix, fit this on, you're like, well, man, God's asking a lot out of me. He's asking me to sing them with all my heart. But the reason why he's asking you to sing to him with all of his heart is because God has done something for you on behalf of you that is absolutely beyond comprehension. That God is literally asking you. Some of you might be a little bit you know, ambiguous. You're like, what is he really asking? God is asking for all of you. And some of us might be like, how do I give God all of myself? How do I enter into this? And how do I walk this? Because what we need to first of all understand is that the reason why God can ask us for all of ourselves is because what God has given to us is all of himself. That's what the gospel is. God didn't just simply send Jesus in this world as sort of a, a messenger giving us advice. God sent Jesus into this world as really the fullness of God incarnate, giving himself to us, for us. And in return, God is saying, therefore, give me yourselves, your whole self, 
your intellect, your thinking, your desires, the seed of your desires, your heart. Give it all to me. Sing to the Lord with all your heart. This is really what Paul is describing. It's welcoming God really into the narrative, the source of your life. It's welcoming God into the areas of brokenness, of hurt, of pain, of sorrow, of suffering into our lives. A great psalm about this is Psalm 57. And really, it's a way of basically the psalmist is singing to God, God, take all of me. And that's what we do when we sing. We're inviting God. God, come. It's very similar to like what we described last week where Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the things we pointed out that the Holy Spirit, the way Paul would have understood the Holy Spirit was that the Holy Spirit is the creative force of God. Very God himself that brooded over the face of the darkness, over the face of the deep, creating existence, creating life into existence, creating this earth that was formless and void into something that was life-giving, life-generating, beautiful. And this very same spirit, Paul says, is actually in you, inside you, living in you. Not that you have to go find some power source, some strength through some sort of means, but that God himself has given himself to you. So that what that means is that any area in your life that is chaotic, that the source of healing is there inside you to bring order. Any area in your life that is just broken, God is there to bring healing. That this is the God that lives inside you. In the same way, that's what Paul is saying, is that sing to the Lord with all your heart. And by doing that, we are inviting God into, really, the narrative, the center of our lives. Third thing is that we see that when you're singing, is that you're actually using uh, a spiritual weapon of your warfare. You're using a spiritual weapon of our warfare. And Paul will actually get into this in the next chapter where he begins to talk about, you know, spiritual warfare, the famous passages that Paul uh, begins to talk about, some of those things. We'll be looking at that shortly. And uh, it's kind of raised a lot of questions for a lot of people because, you know, it, it's led to all sorts of weird, funky theology in terms of, like, what is spiritual warfare? What are the spiritual uh, weapons of our warfare? But I would say that one of the spiritual weapons of our warfare is, is singing. Something happens when we sing. Something powerful happens when God's people sing something takes place in a profound way i think a great old testament passage to kind of take a look at this is in the book of second or second chronicles why don't you guys open there real quick second chronicles chapter 20 second chronicles 20 verse 15 i'm going to read it uh don't have any problem with you guys taking a look at the index within your bibles it's no problem it's one of those books that sometimes maybe a little bit hard to find we'll give you a hint it is right after first chronicles You're welcome. Second Chronicles, um, chapter 20, verse 15, I'll read it. It says, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at the great army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. This is a story where uh, a leader is, Jehoshaphat is his name, was facing a massive foe, a massive army, and uh, his natural response is exactly what your response and my response would have been, which was anxiety and fear. Because that's often what we do when we're faced with an army that is bigger than, greater than, that threatens us, is fear. And God says, don't be afraid. And here's why he says, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed at this great army. For the battle is not yours, but it's God's. Tomorrow, go down against them, and you will not need to fight in this battle, but stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord. In fact, the language that's used here in the Hebrew is very similar and probably borrowed language that Paul uses when he begins to talk about spiritual warfare, where he says stand firm and all these other types of language is probably very similar, some corollaries going on here. So what we see here is sort of indicatives. 
This is, it's indicating what God has promised to do for King Jehoshaphat. So take a look at the next slide, the next little section here. Verse 18, he says this, And then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem before the Lord, there they were worshiping the Lord, and the Korahites, uh, Korahites stood up to praise the Lord and the king of Israel with a very loud voice. And it basically goes on to say, and then they end up winning this battle. Like God fought for them. God did this great work on their behalf, and they were just simply doing what God asked them to do. Just stand still and see the salvation of God. Let me be the one that fights this battle. And in response, Jehoshaphat bows his head. So what precipitated the victory for them was their worship. So here's a question. What are some of the biggest vices or the biggest challenges or biggest enemies that you and I face within our lives? This is something that we oftentimes have to really kind of wrestle with and grapple with. Sometimes I think some of the things that we think about were the biggest vices and enemies in our life is, you know, paying our mortgage or paying our rent or paying bills off. And that may be part of it, but really there's an underlying issue that goes on there where oftentimes we're afraid of really where our daily man is going to come from. In other words, that's disbelief. So there's roots that oftentimes come out and begin to show itself in other alternative forms. Like, well, the biggest worries in my life right now is, is money. Really, the biggest worry beneath that is disbelief. We don't really truly believe that we have a God that cares about providing for us. Disbelief is an, is an enemy. It fights against us. It resists the work that God wants to do in our lives. So in other types of things you can begin to think about, that our enemies within our hearts are inordinate desires or anxieties or depression, fears or doubts, unforgiveness or offenses. All of these things are enemies that if we don't do something with them, then they continue to oppress us, taunt us, threaten us, destroy us. So how do we break the stronghold of these things upon our lives? And I think what Paul is saying, what Paul knew, what we see that was sort of a habit within the Old Testament was they turn to God and sing. I mean, somehow, when we turn to God and we trust God enough to say, I'm going to give these things to you, I'm going to sing to you, raise my voice, raise my hands, give my life, let my body be given as an instrument to you, somehow God uses these things and says, I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll break these strongholds. I will give you the forgiveness you need to pass along to those whom you've held grudges against. I will help you to receive the financial needs that you have to take care of in your life. In other words, like what Jesus says, many of us are worried about our lives. We're filled with anxiety, filled with stress. And Jesus basically says, don't be filled with anxiety. Don't be stressed. Don't you know that you have a father that cares for you? Don't be worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on. Trust the fact that you have a father that actually loves you. And so our response to this great God is to do what he asks us to do, which is raise our hands and just sing, response. Final one is this, is that when we sing to God, we actually awaken the possibilities for joy. Last slide is we actually awaken these possibilities for joy within our hearts, but also within that of the neighborhood. And what I mean by the neighbor or the neighborhood is the bigger, broader scope of people that we engage with around us. It's the idea where Jesus says, love your neighbors. Who's our neighbor? See, we love to kind of divorce ourselves from any responsibility to our neighbor because, why? Self-preoccupation. What sets us free from that? Shockingly, lots of things, but one in part is singing. So 
as a church gathers together, as we sing, as we lift up our voices in harmony together, what happens is something profound takes place as we sing, as we turn our voices to God. There are verbal proclamations of God's greatness that are going out into this room and into the ears and in the hearts and in the minds, into the center of other people's lives, and that changes them. I'll give you two anecdotes. First of which is before I was a Christian, I was 15 years old, uh, just before I became a Christian, it was towards the end of my 15-year age and just before I turned 16, uh, I, my, my, my parents took me to a church. In fact, both my sisters here. Guys, raise your hand. I wasn't going to do this, but it's kind of cheesy, huh? Raise your hand. I'm your brother. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm going to throw your bike across the room like I did. Remember that? We got some stories. Anyways, both my sisters are here. But... Um, my, my parents basically started going to a church, Calvary Chapel, and they only went there for a short period of time, and it was down in Costa Mesa. And, and basically what happened, I, I walked into the high school group. I don't even think my sisters were in high school at that particular point. And I, I walked into the high school group. There was probably around 300 people there. And I'd never been in any other church uh, other than a Catholic church. And so that experience, when I walked in there, a uh, sermon wasn't even preached yet. Nothing was even spoken. The Bible wasn't even cracked open yet. All that happened was there was a gathering of 300-plus high school age kids, and then the first you know, strike of music began to play. And all of a sudden, every voice in there began to raise, began to be singing. People were raising their hands to God. And for me, as an unsaved you know, 15-year-old kid that was lost, I remember just absolutely being swept up into that. I didn't know how to describe it, didn't know how to put it into a category. All I knew is that God was, was doing something profound in my heart, and it changed me. It, it, it opened my heart for what was about to be said. And it was be able to hear the gospel then change me and open my mind and my understanding to who God was. But the point of the matter was is it all began for me with congregational singing. So I want you to think about that. People come in here all the time that aren't Christians. People come in here all the time that are wounded and broken and hurting. And when we come in and gather here, and there are verbal proclamations of God's greatness going out in this room. That has the potential of awakening the possibilities of joy within people's hearts and lives. And most profoundly, yours. Second anecdote is um, just on a personal level with my, my family. Like, you know, I, I have two daughters. Many of you guys have heard me tell a story about my daughters. And the reality is, is that there are times when just life can get challenging, and especially when you've got three women in the house, and sometimes... Things can be rough every 30 days or so, let's just say. And then what happens is, what happens, our, our, our circumstances can get a little bit tense. And the other day, I just kind of chat with my wife and things, we were having like one of those moments and there was just, everyone's on edge and it was kind of stressful and tense and whatnot. And all of a sudden, I kind of had this epiphany. I'm like, you know what, I need to put on some music. And Cherry's like, yeah, you do, put on some music. So I put on some music and within an instant, it changed the atmosphere. In an instant, it changed the atmosphere, like, my, my kids are singing, they're humming now, and, you know, they're teenagers. And so in an instant, the entire atmosphere changed because of the praises of God. Sorrow was transformed into joy. Complaining uh, was transformed into, I mean, not necessarily overt gratitude. Like, thank you, Daddy, you're an amazing father. You know, like, none of that, all right? It, it, was, it was just like, it, it just changed. It changed. And the music, singing, worship changed it. I'm going to finish. I'm going to have Darren and Jesse come on up. I want to finish with a quote from one of my favorite theologians. His name's Jonathan Edwards. Here's what he said. He says, the duty of singing, this is actually taken out of uh, 
uh, a treatise that he wrote, a treatise on religious affections. Um, he wrote this, that the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed entirely to express our affections or religious affections. He says, no other reason can be assigned as to why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and to do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. And his point very clearly is that when we sing, what it does is it stirs up something in us. It awakens something in us that's sleeping or dormant or maybe even dead. It has the power to push darkness to the side and replace that with light, with God's power, God's presence. And I want to invite you to sing. What we're going to do right now is we're going to sing. Here, how are we going to do this? All right. I've done this before, so it's not totally something new. If you're new here, this may be new to you. But why don't we all stand? And we're going to sing. And the way we'll do this this morning is we'll kind of do like acapella style. And we say this sometimes because, you know, we, we have some amazing musicians in this church. You guys all agree we have some amazing musicians? Some amazing musicians. Um, and, you know, most of the time we've got full bands and all that type of stuff, a lot of instrumentation, and we love instrumentation. But we also realize that sometimes it's very easy for us, the congregation, to actually hide behind layers of instrumentation, not sing. In other words, we, we, we basically uh, delegate out singing to you know the people on stage we love darren and jesse we love all the worship leaders we love all the people that devote their time to creating something that's absolutely beautiful but at the end of the day what this time is about is it's not about a band it's not about worship leaders it's not about instrumentation it's not about arrangement it's about the congregation lifting their voices to this great god because he invites us to come into his power his presence and to be changed to be set free to have those things that press us down and oppress us and ruin us to be set free to be given life. And I want to invite you into that because that's what we're here for. It's not just to flood our minds with information and knowledge, but so that we would meet the living God and be changed. So what we'll do is I'll I'll start by praying and just to kind of quiet our hearts. And what I want to encourage you to think about is as I pray, God may lay a song on someone's heart in here. And what we'll do is we'll sing together as a congregation, but you guys are going to be the one to lead it, right? Not not necessarily all of you, but maybe some of you here will think of a song that will come to your mind, and maybe one that's, you know, we haven't sung here in a really long time, it might be one that is not kind of the normal roster of our songs, so that's totally fine. Um, it's, it's a song that maybe everybody knows, the, the, the thing is that we will all join in and begin to sing a cappella with you, we'll join in with you. Um, if it's a song um, that nobody really knows, um, make sure that you're, you're bold enough to sing it really loud, because, no, I'm serious, I'm serious, because... Um, we, we don't know it, but, but you, you don't know, but the lyrics in that song may have such profound impact, and they need to be heard. And we need others to be able to hear here. So one final thing is we have this tendency oftentimes to, to not sing out because we're afraid that our voices aren't, aren't that good. And I just want to say something to you. The majority of you in this room, your voices really are horrible. I'm really serious. I'm, I'm totally serious. And, 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 and everybody around you knows it. I, I'm, I'm just calling the, the elephant for what it is. It's in the room. It's there. We just got to acknowledge it. The fact of the matter is there's a small percentage here that's really, really good. Some of you guys are fantastic, and you've got really gifted voices, and you sing loud. And so the point that I, that I want to make is that, but that's okay. Even if our voices aren't that great, it's okay. We're family here. And to our Father, our God, He loves to hear 
his children raise their voices. There's something profound that happens when a bunch of people that don't sing really well sing alongside others that sing really well. We have this ability to kind of hide behind that really good voice. And so when we sing, if you're stood next to somebody and you sing, you know that you don't have that great a voice, but the person next to you sings really well. And so you start kind of singing alongside them and you're like, oh my gosh, my voice sounds really good. I remember there was a time like, like I, you know, I've, I've always loved you too. I remember one time I was like singing along with a song like Bono. I'm like, no way, I really sound like him. And I turned the music off. I'm like, I really don't sound like him. And the point of the matter is, is that is absolutely true. Most of us do nothing but like have these like groans that come out and it's might formulate a word here and there, but the fact of the matter is, is that we have a God that, that, that is not moved by our inabilities to sing, but what he does is he invites us to come sing, sing loudly, to use our bodies as instruments. It's one of the reasons why we, you know, encourage you to not just use your voice as an instrument, but use your bodies, raise your hands. The scripture is filled with all sorts of ways of describing how our bodies are used as instruments on our knees as a way of describing the fact that God is king and, and we're, we're subject to him. He frees, he liberates us, so we worship him. As a way of raising our hands as like a child to his father, as like a, a person who's hungry for bread, a beggar knows to go to God to receive, or like someone that is recognizing absolute, pure, perfect, loving deity like God is. And we raise our hands in honor and praise and victory through this great God. So we, we engage our bodies. So I'm going to invite you into this. So I'm going to pray. And I'll give it over to you guys. And uh, so some of you guys right now are like, you've been, you're like, this, I've been waiting for this time like, like, to sing. Like, this, this is your time. But again, really, at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about you being an instrument used by God to lead the congregation, the church, and to sing. So we'll do a few songs like that and just let God lead and direct. And then we'll have Darren and Jesse kind of close us with a song. But let's just, let, let, me, let me just pray over us as a, as a congregation and welcome this great, mighty, life-giving transformative God who restores chaos in our lives to order. God, we thank you that you are here. We know you're here. You're always here. You're never not here. But God, we ask that you would make your presence tangible, known, sensed right now. So God, I pray that you would move within this church, this congregation, to sing songs loudly, passionately, joyfully to you and set people free through them. Let's sing. As God may lay it on your heart, go for it. We'll join.